So this evening's talk will be on the four great vows. But before we go there, I'd like to um, read a passage from the record of a 9th century uh, Chan teacher, in other words, uh, a Zen teacher from China during the Tang period, who is known by his uh, posthumous title, De Shan. De Shan entered the hall and addressed the monks, saying, I don't hold to some view about the ancestors. Here there are no ancestors and no Buddhas. Bodhidharma is just an old stinking foreigner. Shakyamuni is a dried up piece of shit. Manjushri and Samantabhadra are, are dung carriers. What is known as realizing the mystery is nothing but breaking through to grab an ordinary person's life. Bodhi and Nirvana are just donkeys tethering posts. The 12 divisions of scriptural canon are devil's texts, just paper for wiping infected skin boils. The four fruitions and the three virtuous states, original mind and the 10 stages, these are just graveyard guarding ghosts. They'll never save you. Now, this kind of language is not uncommon um, in the Chan tradition. In fact, Chan teachers, Zen teachers often have somewhat of a reputation for speaking in this, what might appear rather shocking manner. But as soon as we um, acknowledge these uh, statements as belonging to a revered tradition, Zen Buddhism in this case, and the book I'm quoting from is called, nice, very pucker translation, Zen's Chinese Heritage, The Masters and Their Teachings, <laughs> from Wisdom Publications. As soon as we uh, present it like this, we have effectively domesticated and sanitized these texts. In other words, the very irony that the 12 divisions of scriptural canon are devil's texts, now we find that this text is part of the canon too. So that these uh, shocking, uh, rather iconoclastic uh, remarks have somehow now been neutralized. Um, just try and imagine that um, you're invited, or let's say I'm invited, it does happen sometimes, I'm invited to a, some Buddhist uh, conference with all the representatives of the different schools, senior Theravada monks and eminent Tibetan lamas, and so forth and so on. And if I were to actually uh, give a talk in which I said something like, Shakyamuni Buddha is a dried up piece of shit, <laughs> If I actually said it to their face, if I looked the great Ajahn in the eye, or the Tibetan Lama, this would be considered to be, well, to put it mildly, um, impolite. <laughs> if not downright rude and obnoxious, the sort of thing that would have you evicted from the room. I like to think that when these texts were originally spoken, the speakers actually meant what they were saying. This isn't just some Zen parlor game where you, um, as a kind of, uh, a kind of a ploy, as was expected of you as a Zen teacher, you trot out these kinds of statements. But the whole thing is, as soon as it's framed as Zen Buddhism, then it becomes somewhat expected. It no longer has anything like the shock effect it may have had at the 
uh, when it was first spoken. So I think if we're going to take these texts seriously, and I do take them seriously, I'm going to actually uh, accept that the person who uttered this said, this, said it with complete um, sincerity, with great passion, with great conviction. He meant every word he said. So if we are to be true to this tradition, then we need, I think, to go beyond the surface language that's uh, somehow domesticated by being part of a canonical text and really reflect on what they might have been getting at. I think it's undeniable that Deshan and, and many others too um, were struggling to give voice to something that they deeply regarded as of utmost importance. They weren't playing around. They are, as it were, um, passionate about a practice that um, is not simply based on an uncritical reverence for tradition or classical texts of some kind, but that is a practice that speaks to the very core, to the very heart of the living person. I love the expression in the middle of the passage, what is known as realizing the mystery, which sounds all very kind of mystical, whistical, is nothing but breaking through to grab an ordinary person's life. In other words, there's this... Um, constant shift away from the safety and the security of uh, the, 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 the consolatory language that often, in which these teachings are often couched, and a return uh, to the immediacy, the, uh, uh, the raw, felt experience of being uh, alive of being an ordinary person and what that ordinary person's life is. And again, we're not talking in the abstract here. We're talking about you and me. We're talking about what it feels like to be sitting here now. Your heart is beating. You are breathing. You are sitting aware of your body. And that is your life. And that is what this practice is essentially about. It's not about anything else. It's about what is actually happening to you now. What you are seeing and smelling and tasting and hearing and touching and feeling and thinking. That is what these teachings are addressing. And what this movement in China that began around the 6th, 7th centuries is, um, is, is concerned with is, uh, is turning us away from a kind of reverence uh, for uh, the distant past um, and the great enlightened masters and teachers that we honor and coming back uh, to the pulsing uh, beat of our own blood the firing of the neurons in our own brains. And also, of course, and very centrally, the, the poignancy of the suffering that we experience as mortal creatures. That underlying discomfort, unease, that keeps bubbling up as soon as things do not appear to be quite how we would like them to be. So constantly we're returning to this very, very core uh, experience that, difficult to translate, but we call dukkha. The dukkha of our lives. Not just meaning the painful bits, but the essentially poignant, unreliable, tragic dimension 
of experience, which is perhaps most, most succinctly captured by the sense that our lives are so fragile and brief. So when we ask ourselves, what is this? That's what we're asking about, nothing else. How can we come to terms with this condition in which we find ourselves now? Dejan, uh, another passage with Dejan. A monk asked Dejan, what is enlightenment? Dejan hit him and said, get out, don't shit in this room. Although the translator here says, don't defecate here. <laughs> As though anyone would actually say that. <laughs> so the text itself, he wants to sanitize these things. Um, the monk asked, what is the Buddha? And Deshan replied, an old Indian beggar. So again, this constant... Uh, taking these things off their pedestals and a returning to the, the, you know, the raw facts of existence. So how might a, uh, a comparable approach to the Dharma, to Buddhism today, um, uh, look from this kind of perspective? this uh, willingness to uh, challenge what is sacred um, in order to recover what might actually lie at the heart of uh, the Dharma itself. And I'd like to take an ex as an example here the, the venerable doctrine of the Four Noble Truths. Now, the Four Noble Truths is... I'm sure everyone in this room is aware, is for many people the underlying doctrine or teaching or, or framework within which uh, the teaching of the Buddha is grounded, um, from which pretty much the whole of Buddhism can be extrapolated from these four noble truths. But maybe we could question that too. And in fact, in my recent books, that's exactly what I've been doing. I don't claim to be De Shan, the great Zen master of ancient China, but I do think that the training that I have had in the Dharma um, has always uh, encouraged me to question what I'm taught, not just to blindly accept it as uh, some revealed truth. And I was initially trained in the Tibetan Geluk tradition, which is, again, quite conservative in many ways. But it is a training that uh, uh, emphasizes the importance of uh, critical analysis, of not taking things at face value, not accepting them just because they are regarded as sacred truths of Buddhism, but to really subject them to uh, critical inquiry. And over the years, I've spent a great deal of time uh, thinking about the Four Noble Truths. Currently, um, I'd rather get rid of the Four Noble Truths, to be quite honest. Um, I feel the Four Noble Truths are basically a me metaphysical truth claims. They are making statements, generalized statements about the nature of reality, which are claimed to be true for all time. That life or existence is suffering, or if you wish, there is suffering, which is obviously true, but it's, the five, it's, it's our experience, it's uh, the five khanda, the five clinging bundles of suffering, the birth, sickness, aging, and death, that life is suffering, that the origin of suffering is craving. Again, a huge generalized truth claim, that the end of suffering is the end of craving, or the ending of craving. And the path that leads to the ending of suffering is the Noble Eightfold Path. 
All of these are propositions. They are truth claims. They are uh, sentences that are believed by Buddhists to correspond to a state of affairs in the world. What is the case with things? In other words, they're exactly the kind of doctrines that someone like Deshan would have been deeply suspicious of. They're trying to somehow freeze frame uh, the nature of truth, the nature of reality. The very expression truth is, I find, very problematic. Um, especially when it's translated into English and we get the truth coming out with a big T at the front. Capital T, truth. Not just a general or any old truth, but big truths. So I found it more helpful, to be honest, to abandon this uh, way of thinking about the Four Noble Truths and to consider instead how um, these truths are more helpfully thought of as practices. Now, I realize that probably most Buddhist traditions would actually you know, give a fair deal of emphasis to that, but the problem is as soon as you uh, frame them as Four Noble Truths, you have already set a template for a particular way of looking at them, a particular way of thinking about them, and that way of thinking inevitably gives rise to a certain kind of discourse. Like if you say to people, life is suffering, then almost automatically the response will be, but what about all the happiness we experience in life? And then you get onto this discussion where trying to explain, well, actually what we mean here by suffering is da-da-da-da-da, and off you go. Um, that could be very interesting, it could be quite revealing, but I think it's missing the point. The point, which is actually stated quite explicitly at the conclusion of the uh, discourse that is supposedly the first thing the Buddha taught, which is called the turning of the wheel of Dhamma. At the end of this short discourse, uh, the Buddha uh, quite clearly recognizes that each of these truths, quote-unquote, um, is uh, something to be acted upon in a specific way. That the point of the Dharma is not to persuade yourself that life is suffering, or that the origin of suffering is craving. The point of the practice is to embrace suffering. It's to fully know dukkha, to fully Im uh, come to terms with, to say yes to the life situation that confronts you in this moment. These are tasks to be recognized, performed, and accomplished. They're not truths to be believed or disbelieved. And if we switch the focus, which I think is entirely legitimate because that's effectively how the first discourse presents these truths, quote unquote, then we move from a truth-based metaphysics, which attempts to explain how reality is, to a task-based ethics. In other words, what matters is what you do. And each of these truths is therefore, I feel, better understood as a task, as something to do, something that is to be done with the utmost urgency and care. And what we've been doing on this retreat, what we do on any retreat, is that we practice these four tasks. The first task is the task of coming to terms with, with opening our heart and our mind to the condition we find ourselves in right now. And that doesn't mean just my inner experience. It means this total um, sense I have of being embedded and embodied in this world with others, 
not just the others in this room, but the other forms of life in the garden, the neighbors, and by extrapolation, the whole of the community and the society of which we are um, tacitly but inevitably interwoven. How do we embrace that? How do we say yes to that? The practice of meditation, I feel, no matter what particular style of practice we might do, is about fundamentally saying, yes, this is the condition we are in. In the practice we've been doing this week, this practice of what is this, that too is a practice that likewise uh, sheds light on or approaches this question of who we are. That it opens up our experience as something which, in a deep way, is, is unpin-downable. That there is something strange, there is something poignant, there's something tragic, there's something beautiful, there's something sublime. None of these adjectives in themselves can capture the totality of what we're experiencing in this moment, in all of its complexity, in all of its opacity, in all of its uh, dullness, in all of its um, radiance. So what is this, is the practice of the first task, of embracing the condition, our condition, but in such a way that we um, unpack, we distill what is questionable about it, what is um, uh, uh, opaque and unclear becomes not so much disinteresting anymore, but rather strangely mysterious and seductive, and an object of curiosity and perplexity. So what is this? Is about asking deeply what it means to be, as T.S. Eliot called it, an infinitely gentle, infinitely suffering thing. And as we do that, we also simultaneously and unavoidably become aware of how we react to what we're experiencing. We notice how what bubbles up within us is very often a disquiet, um, maybe an aversion, maybe an attraction, maybe a kind of <coughs> egocentric little narrative that starts running around in our heads. That as human beings, we are reactive creatures. That we encounter, or our organism encounters an environment, whether it's visual, auditory, olfactory, gustatory, or whatever, and that triggers a reaction. Now sometimes that reaction is a very positive one. We feel a sense of joy, we feel a sense of uh, generosity, we feel a sense of equanimity. Then these responses, of course, are the sorts of qualities we seek to cultivate in this practice. But we also notice, and this is where the Buddha's teaching is particularly um, uh, focused, is we also notice that we are very prone to reactions that are somehow destructive. Our attachments, our fears, our jealousies, our pride. The, there's a very deep-seated, instinctual, I suspect at root, but also social, um, psychological, things, ha habit patterns that we've collectively and individually um, uh, develop within us over the years that flare up. The Buddha called them fires. They flare up. And very often they flare up so rapidly, so 
um, powerfully that they just, they just carry us away. And we end up in these long trains of associative thought that we don't even notice are happening for several minutes before we kind of click, oh yeah, I'm supposed to be sitting here meditating. And back we come. And the second of the four tasks is to let go of that, to release our grip on these reactive patterns. It's not to try to get rid of them. It's not about suppressing them. It's not about um, trying to uh, uh, lead a life in which they just don't happen anymore. That would be nice, but it's unlikely. But it's far more about the challenge of, well, how do I deal with this stuff? And I'm sure all of us probably... Um, as we've been sitting through what is nearly a week now, have become quite familiar, quite intimate with these reactive patterns. Yet what do we, what, what do, we do? How do you deal with them? And the Buddha's answer, and I think it's also pretty much the answer we find in Zen as well, is that actually you don't do anything. You embrace this... Uh, reactivity, this fear, this hatred, this attraction, this lust, whatever it might be, and you simply allow it the freedom and the space to play itself out. If we don't identify with it, if we don't reject it, if we don't get caught up in it, it will simply follow its course as a transient, conditional, contingent phenomenon and will fizzle out of its own accord. Of course, that doesn't mean it won't come back again. It probably will, and probably sooner than later. But the point is that this allows us a way of being with these reactions in which we have them, they don't have us. We somehow begin to assume um, a responsibility, uh, an authority, uh, a stability, a clarity, whereby we can begin to work with this stuff in a way in which it becomes less and less a power over which we seem to have almost no or very little control. And this is not, not achieved by doing something, it's actually achieved by just allowing ourselves to dwell in a non-reactive space whereby these things are allowed to rise and pass away in full consciousness and awareness. And as this happens, we begin to experience moments in which we find that they have, have gone temporarily. We find ourselves in a still, clear, open space of awareness, the, the, the stopping of greed, the stopping of hatred, the stopping of confusion opens up moments in which we glimpse the possibility of not being caught up in reactivity or craving, as it's traditionally called. And there are moments of stillness, there are moments of peace. And these are, as it were, in the glimpses of something nirvanic, of something that is not conditioned by the habits of reactivity. It may not last very long, but I think it's very important in a practice like this that we consciously affirm and valorize those moments of still, calm, presence. And not just by making a mental note, but actually um, exploring what it feels like within our body-mind to not react. To really try to uh, taste the very flavor of this modality of being. To feel it in the body, the felt sense again. And that 
is not the end of the practice. It's not the goal of the practice to experience such moments and to, in a way, try to lead a life in which they become more and more the norm. But this is what allows us the freedom to be able to respond to the life that we're living, either within ourselves, in the world with others, in society, on the planet. This, this is a, a possibility that opens up through this practice whereby we're no longer uh, conditioned by what we want, what we don't like, what we're confused about, that just prompts us to behave um, impulsively, instinctively, habitually. But the freedom becomes something that allows us to act in a way that is unconditioned by reactivity. And again, this word unconditioned is often raised up into a sort of pedestal, the unconditioned. But for the Buddha, the unconditioned or asankata means unconditioned by greed, hatred, confusion, egoism. In other words, it's actually a moral or an ethical freedom. It's not a metaphysical freedom. It's the freedom to be able to think and speak and act unconditioned by such things. And that is what opens up what the Buddhists call the Noble Eightfold Path, which is comprised of how we see the world, how we make choices, intentions, how we speak, how we act, how we work, how we focus our energies, how we pay attention with mindfulness, and how we concentrate or become collected through samadhi, through focus. So in other words, this non-reactive space allows us to engage with life from a new perspective. It's like, in a way, allowing ourselves to, to be reborn, to be born uh, into a, an experience uh, that's freed to some degree, not in some absolute sense, I guess, but to some significant degree from these reactive habits and prompts. Now, what's this got to do with Zen Buddhism? In Zen, or should I say Son, as I've been saying, um, there's not a great deal of emphasis on the Four Noble Truths, or even in the way that I've just somehow rephrased them. But what is central is um, a, a practice called the Four Great Vows. So what are these Four Great Vows? The first vow is sentient beings are boundless. I vow to liberate them all. The second vow is defilements are inexhaustible, I vow to sever them all. The third vow is, Dharma gates are numberless, I vow to learn them all. And the fourth vow is, the, Buddha, the Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to realize it. Now, um, some years ago, my friend and colleague, Gil Fronsdahl, who had trained as a Zen priest, uh, suggested, well, actually, maybe these refer to the Four Noble Truths. And that struck me as a very compelling idea. Recently, in fact, only a few months ago, um, I was teaching in, um, in, in a Minnesota Zen center. And uh, someone in the audience actually pointed out that there is a passage in the classical Chinese Buddhist canon, a discourse called the jeweled garland of the Bodhisattva or something, uh, in which it is stated that the four vows 
are a way of expressing the Four Noble Truths. So it, has actually, it does actually have a, an, uh, a, um, a confirmation in the tradition itself. But what I find um, uh, particularly uh, affirming here is that the vows, the Four Noble Truths as vows, is a further uh, extension of the Four Noble Truths as tasks. So we can move from truths to tasks to vows. And once they become vows, they become explicitly ethical commitments. And I think what Deshan and a lot of these Zen masters are doing is not just debunking metaphysical claims for the fun of it, um, or not making outrageous comments because that's kind of what they're supposed to do. But my hunch is that they're making these very sincere, albeit sometimes rather dramatic, rejections of doctrine and ideology and metaphysics in order to bring us back to the immediacy of what is required of us as ethical beings. The important thing with this practice is not what you believe, it's not even what you gain through your deep insights in meditation about the nature of yourself or reality. What really matters is how this practice will make a difference in how you live. In other words, how you think, how you speak, how you act, how you work. And again, I think the Zen tradition is quite uh, consistent uh, here. Um, what I enjoyed very much about training in a Zen monastery is that work in the monastery is an integral part of the monk's life. They've broken from the early tradition which, in which monks are not allowed to you know, dig the fields and uh, farm. Whereas here in Zen you have this idea of uh, Bai Chang, who was one of the early teachers, who says a day without work is a day without food. It's one of the uh, statements often repeated. Uh, that there's something about the life in those monasteries that's very much hands-on. This is not the monks living this rather uh, privileged and somehow uh, well-catered-for life. But no, the monks do the cooking, the monks do the cleaning, the monks do the gardening, the monks grow the vegetables and so on. This is a more integrated uh, way of life than we find in some forms of Buddhist monasticism. And I like that. Also, there's an integration of the arts, the practice of the arts, uh, that again is not seen as a sort of adjunct to one's practice, but as an integral part of it. So when we um, come to these four vows, we get to... Um, a very explicit um, reading of this core Buddhist uh, doctrine. The four truths, the four tasks, have now become overt ethical commitments, ways of living in and relating to the world. So sentient beings are boundless, I vow to liberate them all. This to me is a natural extension of fully know suffering, embrace suffering. Because what suffers are living beings, and living beings are boundless. Living beings from single-celled organisms right through to the most complex kinds of primates like us, um, or at least we can speak from the primates' point of view, we suffer pain. We suffer, we grow old, we die, we get sick, and so on. And this is not just a kind of a neutral observation, but the response to the suffering of all beings is the longing for all beings not to suffer. 
And this becomes part of the vision, the ideal of the bodhisattva. These are sometimes, these four vows are often seen as shorthand of the bodhisattva's vow. So the practice of asking what is this, the practice of being mindful and then becoming more and more empathetic to the suffering of others, that is a practice that leads us to then uh, commit ourselves, whether in a sort of ritual form or whether as a deep kind of intuitive longing that suffering, that living beings may not suffer. And yet built into the very language of these four vows is an acknowledgement of something impossible. If living beings are boundless, there's no way that I am going to liberate them all. Um, that's just a pipe dream. But what it points to, I think, is somehow more important, namely that if we really did experience the world in this way, we could not but long to assuage the suffering of the other. It, it might be unrealistic that we'll ever achieve it, but it's something that becomes less and less uh, feasible to ignore. So this whole practice may start with simply our own body, our own minds, uh, the tragic dimension of that, our own impermanence. But as we tease this out, as we extend the sphere of our attention, it leads us to, and I think it leads us unavoidably to a reconsideration of what really matters in terms of what we do. The second vow, defilements are inexhaustible, I vow to sever them. Again, you can see the paralleling with the second task, which is to let go of craving, to let go of reactivity, to let go of greed, hatred, and delusion. What in the uh, later traditions they often call the kileshas, the defilements. And again, these are, in, these are inexhaustible. They will keep on re rearing their heads. There may be periods in our lives where they're less pronounced. We might, through our practice, learn to diminish their power over us. But if they are rooted in our neurobiology, in our evolutionary past, they're always going to be around to some degree. And they're going to keep rising up and surprising us. And so the practice is, although they are endless, I will sever them all. Sever might sound a bit harsh, but again, it's really just a way of describing this process of letting go, of not getting caught up in them, of disempowering them. Um, our Zen teacher, uh, our Son teacher, Kuzan Sunim, used to say, what is this, this question, what is this, is like a sword that cuts through destructive thoughts. So each time um, some negative thought or some fantasy or some fear or some depressive idea arises in your mind, you cut through it by saying, what is this? You turn it from a fact into something to be questioned, something to be curious about. And in doing so, you transform it. So the methodology here in Chan is to, um, is to constantly turn what appears to be a brute fact into a question. What is this thing that's rising up within me? And that in itself is already the first step to their losing their power over you. So again, we can see how embracing suffering is very much like seeking, to, longing to liberate all sentient beings, that 
letting go of uh, craving is very much like severing all these endless defilements. But the third one's a little less obvious. Dharma gates are numberless, I vow to learn them all. Whereas the third uh, task is to behold or to realize the stopping of craving, the stopping of reactivity. Dharma gates. This is an expression that's peculiarly uh, Chinese. You don't find, as far as I'm aware, an equivalent in Pali or Sanskrit. But just think for a moment about the metaphor. A gate. A gate is an empty space. But it's not just any old empty space. It's an empty space that is framed by two pillars and by a beam along the top through which you are able to enter into another space, into another landscape, into another room, or onto a road, whatever it might be. And Dharma gates are, uh, are uh, numberless, it says. I take Dharma gate to be any situation in life can become a doorway through which you can enter into the path. There's no situation in life that cannot be transformed into uh, a Dharma gate. Now a Dharma gate is a rather, um, a, a rather concrete image of a kind of emptiness. And Nibbana, Nirvana, is again a sort of emptiness. It's an emptying of, of greed, of hatred, confusion, fear, etc., etc. These, when these defilements somehow die down, there is uh, then revealed an absence a non-reactive space. may not last very long, but that's the moment of freedom. So each situation in life can uh, be emptied out of our fears, of our attachments, of our longings, our hatreds, and so on, and in doing so can become a doorway into a response to the situation we find ourselves in, a conscious, uh, careful, caring response rather than just a, a habitual flaring up of the uh, most uh, 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 nearby emotion or thought that pops into our minds. And the fourth vow is that the Buddha way is unsurpassable and I vow to realize it. And this clearly refers back to the Noble Eightfold Path. Uh, this way of life that becomes a possibility once we have uh, found a way to live that's not determined by our egotistic reactivity. The path, the way, the Buddha way. And this again points not just to uh, our spiritual life at all. That is part of it, obviously. But what I think is very striking about the Buddha way, or the Eightfold Path, is that it, encompass the, it encompasses the whole of our humanity. It's not just about becoming the world's best meditator but it's a form of life in which meditation and awareness and mindfulness and concentration are very much at the heart of it, but that they're only meaningful as a heart that animates a body, if you wish. And that body is how we see and think and speak and act and work. All of us are engaged in this practice. 
the word practice, I think, has to be taken out of its narrow sense of meaning doing some formal spiritual exercise. I've got to go and do my practice, people say, which usually means they're going to sit cross-legged on a cushion for a few minutes. But practice, bhavana, this cultivation, is something that extends to every aspect of, of who we are. So what we can see, I think, is that once we uh, let go of the idea that to be enlightened means to understand the nature of reality as it really is and gain some privileged uh, mystical insight into truth with a capital T, which is what Dejan and the others are basically poo-pooing and saying just to get out of that way of thinking altogether, then we shift into a practice that is um, inextricably tied up with how we act, how we respond in each moment, and how that becomes the foundation for how we engage with the world in an ethical way. Whether we call that the bodhisattva vow, the four vows, or whether we simply see that as uh, completing the, uh, the circle, as it were, of this practice in such a way that it engages both our, our innermost thoughts and feelings, our bodily sensations, but extends right through into everything that we say and think and do, our actions, our engagements with the rest of the world of which we are intrinsically apart. So that's all I, I want to say this evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.